0: Started to grow, they actually started to overtake a lot of these kingdoms, so they kept moving in closer and closer to the kingdom of Israel. And this is important to think about as we get started in and read through this, uh, of where the Assyrian Empire is and where Egypt is in relation to it. So starting in chapter 17, verse 1, it says, In the twelfth year of Isaac king of Judah, Hosea the son of, uh, of uh, Eli become king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. So it's important to think about nine years of reign as we go on down through here. It says he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. So it says he also did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as bad as the the kings of Israel before him. So he's still failing. He's still not doing what God wants him to do. But he's not quite as bad as the rest of them. And then in verse 3, we we see a guy named Shalamezer, king of Assyria. It says he came up against Hosea and became his vassal and paid him tribute money. So what does it mean to be a vassal? Salamezer came up against Hosea and then Hosea became his vassal and he paid him tribute money. What does that word mean? That's exactly it. That's the definition to a T. If you're a vassal, that's a very strange word, but if you look at the Hebrew word from this, it means exactly what he said. It means that you're a servant. It can mean so much as that you're a slave, but uh, you're either a servant or a slave, but somehow or another uh, you, you are indebted to this person that you're paying this tribute to. And in this particular situation, I would probably liken it to a modern example of, let's say you're a shop owner in a city, and it's kind of a rough part of the city, and then you've got some guys that come in and they're kind of the guys that run that part of the city and they may be bad guys. But they come in and they come to your shop and they tell you, you know, we don't care that you're here. It's fine that you're here. You can keep doing business, but you're going to pay us to stay safe. And then the shop owner says, well, what if I don't pay you? They say, well, we're going to come back. We're going to be the reason you're not going to stay safe. I'm going to take your stuff. I'm going to break your windows. I'm going to make life hard on you. So the shop owner might decide to go ahead and pay uh we wouldn't really call it tribute. He would have to pay to be able to stay there and exist, and be able to continue to do, do his normal activity. This is very similar to what you have happen. It says, it says that Shalmaneser um, came up against them. So here comes Shalmaneser as king of Assyria, and he shows this great power and strength and military ability. And they descend on them, and Hosea kind of kind of folds in right away. He says, okay, I'll, I'll be your vassal. I'll I'll be in service to you. I'll go ahead and pay you this tribute. So. You let us keep doing what we're normally doing. So Shalmaneser allows him to do that. And it's payment to exist. It's payment to continue. But that's also how the king of, uh, of these other nations, like king of Assyria, that's their tax money. They're going to get their tax money back. And even people that were, I guess, members of uh, Assyria like this, they would pay that tribute money. It was like tax money. So that's how they build the things they build. They have the things they build and the riches that they have. So that's what you have happening here. As Shalemeser comes up against him, he pays him tribute money. And then we see a change of direction here in verse 4. It says, And the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hosea, for he had sent messengers to Saul, king of Egypt, and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria as as he had done year by year. So this goes back to what I was telling you at the start. Looking at the north, you see where the Assyrian Empire is? And then it kind of wraps around. So you're going to try to develop a friendship with somebody and you're going to try to get somebody to stand between you and the Assyrian Empire and help you out about not having to pay this tribute. And then you go down here and you, you, you pick a guy that's way down here to help you. See where Assyria is. See where Samaria is. That seemed a little confusing to me why, why he would go pick Egypt to help him. But maybe he thought there was some power in that. There's not really anything that you can find about King Soul of Egypt. Nothing historically that we can find or read. We don't know anything about him. But evidently, Hosea thought that there would be some strength in that if he would pair up with Egypt to be able to stand against this having to pay tribute. And it says that they didn't bring any tribute to him as he had done in years past. And in the latter part of verse 4, says, Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. So that didn't go well for him. As soon as he didn't pay his tribute then Shalmaneser shut him up and he put him in prison he bound him in prison going on in verse 5 it says now the king of assyria went throughout all the land and went up to samaria and besieged it for 3 years so it seemed like this i don't know if this triggered this to happen or if it was going to happen anyway but he put hosea he put hosea in prison he was the kingdom of the he was the king of the northern kingdom so then shalmaneser he descends on the land and he and he besieges samaria for 3 years what do you notice about that? He's besieging Samaria for three years. And he's already put Hosea up in prison. What was Samaria to the northern kingdom? you remember that? It was the capital, right? Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. Wrong button. Was the capital of the northern kingdom, right here in the center of it. So he's marched on that, and he starts taking over these other cities around there. And he's working his way to Samaria, so Shalmaneser is going to take... Samaria, but they don't give up. Even though their king had been put in prison, they decide to fight. So they're not weak. They hold him off for three years as, as he puts his siege on them. But then it goes on to tell us the king of Assyria, um, when he went throughout the land and he besieged it for three years, in the ninth year of Hosea, notice that was the ninth year, that's the last year that Hosea reigned because he took him and he put him in prison because he quit paying tribute. And in that ninth year of the reign of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried away Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Hala and by the harbor and the river of Gozan and in the city of the Medes. I think I've got another slide here that I want to go to. Okay, here it is. So there's a couple of things to notice here with this. As he comes in, the king of Assyria takes them. They take them captive. And then they carry away a big part of Israel and they take them back to Assyria. And as they're putting them in there, when I first read this, I read... Um, and he placed them, he took the people out of out of Samaria and he took them and he placed them um, in Hala and it says by the Habor the river of Gozan and the cities of the Medes when I first read this I thought well that's four places he took them and scattered them out into four places not really what he done, you see this this solid arrow here that goes up through here, you can see Samaria right there where that star is, and you've got the king of Syria that comes in he takes them and he takes them directly north and then he and he curves over, you can see Hamath right there. You can see Gozan right there, but here's a river. That's the river Habor. So when he mentions this, he's talking about he takes them, he takes them north. There's Haran right there. And then there's Gozan right there, which is, you can see the star for it, and it's right above that. If we read that again with this knowledge, and, and you can see Hala right there, and then and then back here in Media, that's where the Medes live. So let's read that again with this new knowledge. Um, he says the, uh, the king of Assyria took. The Samaritans and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Hala. See the first place that we see. And then it says, by the Habor. That's just descriptive. He's talking about the Habor River there. And then he's, and he says that's the river of Gozan. So the, the river of Habor, uh, it goes down through Gozan and then the cities of the Medes. So he took them to three places and he scattered them in three places. He, he took them to... Hit the wrong button again. There we go. He took them up to Gozan, to Hala, and then over to the city of Mez. And we have, the, we have the river here of Habor that He took them to. So that's what's wound up happening. They didn't pay the tribute. He comes in, He takes them. He, he not only defeats them, but He's angry enough that He takes them and He takes the actual people out of the cities and He takes them back with them into His country and He distributes them in these other cities. So then in verse 7 it says, For it was that the children of Israel had sinned "...against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods, and had walked in the statues of the nations whom the Lord had cast from before the children of Israel, and of the kings of Israel which they had made." So this is something to think about here as we go forward and we see this. God's starting to give us an explanation here for what He has written down of why this has happened to the children of Israel. What's the first thing that he lists here that the children of Israel had done that was against what they were supposed to do? Starting in verse seven, there it says, the "Children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. He brought them up out of the land of Egypt, and from the hand of the Pharaoh." What has he said they done? In the first step. They feared, they feared other gods. So that was the beginning of their departure, of leaving what God had taught them. The fact that they started to fear other gods, it started to make them think differently, act differently view things differently. So as they started to fear other gods, it says they walked in the statues of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And that would have been what nation that was cast out of the land? Who lived in the promised land when they got there? Would have been mostly the Canaanites. So they started walking in the statues that they had seen in the Canaanites whenever they had removed them out of that land. Whatever kind of, whatever kind of rules they had, whatever kind of worship they had, they started walking in those kind of statues because they feared other gods. He um, goes on to say, at verse 9, Also, the children of Israel uh, secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. And when we read through this next section, starting with this verse here, I want us to think about, is this really that much different than how we are as Christians or how we are as a nation. Uh, They began to fear other gods and they began to slip away from what God had directed them, from what they knew of how they were supposed to worship and what they were supposed to do because they feared these other gods. They started slipping back and paying attention to those things and walking in those statues. But the very beginning of their physical departure, their spiritual departure, where it really starts to show, it says... In verse 9, also the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. And they built for themselves high places in all the cities. So it's a progression. I want you to watch this progression as we go through this. They did things secretly. It started out with an unhealthy fear. And then they began to do things secretly. And then the children of Israel um, built for themselves high places in all the cities from Watchtower to Fortified City. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images and on every hill and under every green tree. They burned incense in all the high places and like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them, they did wicked things to provoke the Lord with anger. For they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. So look at the progression. They feared other gods they shouldn't have. They started looking at the statues of the people around them. It could be very similar to us today if we start to think too open-mindedly about how other people worship or gods that they serve or how they do things in their life, people that are all around us. And we start thinking about things that they do. We, we follow things that they do, even things society-wise that might take us away from how we're supposed to worship and how we're supposed to be Christians. And then we see that they do things secretly at first. They hide and do it. Something secret is done in secret. It's hidden. It's not known. But then the next thing you know, They build high places in the cities. Why would they build a high place? Why not in the valley?
1: Well, it was closer to heaven, I suppose, one Mm thing. But they built those high places because they were afraid that the people were supposed to go back to Jerusalem and worship Christ. And they were afraid that if the people of Israel went back to Jerusalem, which is the Judah, they would not come back from their homeland, I think. The reason they started
0: that's a really good point that he brought up. So there's a combination of things happening here. They build the high places because it is closer to God, but it's also not down in the cities where people are doing their daily activities. So not only are they doing things in secret, but they start out and they build these high places to go worship, to be closer to God, but to kind of still stay low-key with it. And like like Joe said, they were supposed to go back to the temple and worship. Now whenever they split in half and they went to these two... These two uh, Separate kingdoms, they had the kingdom of Jerusalem that is the the capital down here in the southern kingdom. But then you had Samaria, that's the capital up here. So when they really had this division, at the beginning everybody went to Jerusalem to worship, just like Joe was saying. But when they had this split and they couldn't get along anymore and they made a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, then they started going to uh, Samaria to worship. And that was their capital. But everybody in the southern kingdom went to Jerusalem to worship. So there was a definite divide there. Is how they were split up. And the high places, when they went to the high places, it kept them a place to worship, but they were able to still do things in secret. But before too long, not only are they going and worshiping in high places, but they started to build pillars, sacred pillars. They didn't need sacred pillars. They knew how they were supposed to worship, but they built them anyway. They added to their worship. And then not only did they build sacred pillars, but they built wooden images. What would the wooden images be? Beginning to be Idols. They're starting to have idols. So it's the progression that's taking them further and further away from God. And they were on these high places in the hills, and not only were they the high places, but now all of a sudden, under every green tree. So the green trees would be um, you know, more down in the average places that everybody would see it. So they're starting to put these idols out and these wooden images under every green tree, so the whole nation is starting to deviate from it, not just the religious leaders of the northern nation. And you see here it says uh, in verse 11, and, and there's, a, there's some reason that God has this real dislike for burning incense, especially if they're burning it to um, a pagan god or an idol that they've created. So getting down to the last of their progression, it says in verse 11, there they burned incense in all the high places, like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord. It says they did wicked things to provoke the Lord. They no longer feared the Lord like they should. They feared these idols and false gods more than they should. And as a nation, they were really going away from God. And they did things to provoke Him. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Now continuing on in verse 13, there's more explanation here for us and we still continue to see the progression. It says, Yet, in verse 13 it says, Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah. So Judah's not, Judah's not out of the woods here. Judah's doing some things better, I guess, with some of the things that they did right with their kings. But they're having issues here too. It said, The Lord testified against Judah by all of His prophets, every seer saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep My commandments and My statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, of which I sent to you by My servants the prophets." Nevertheless, or even though that they were having these prophecies, the prophets were prophesying against what they were doing and telling them to turn, to turn from what they are doing and keep the sta- commandments and statutes that, he, that the Lord even gave to their fathers. But it goes on to say, Nevertheless, in verse 14, Nevertheless means even despite of this, or even, even because He said this, they're still doing this, they would not hear, but stiffen their necks like the necks of their fathers, who did not believe in the Lord their God, And they rejected His statutes and His covenant that He had made with their fathers. And His testimonies which He had testified against them, they followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So they still have all these nations around them. They're all worshiping pagan gods. Idols, they do idol worship. They have everything that's completely different than what they should have for worshiping God. And you've got God's people here that's in these two kingdoms with all these other kingdoms around them, and they don't stay pure. They start with an unhealthy fear. They go from that to slowly changing the worship by adding things to it, then not adding things to it, but going all the way away from it eventually. And before too long, they're mixed up in idol worship. And not only is it the northern kingdom, now it's Judah that's mixed up in it, because Judah is following the things that the northern kingdom's doing. So the whole nation, the whole Israel nation, split into the two kingdoms, have now left the path that they were on of following God. Any questions or comments at this point?
1: This is part of the prophecy that was done while Moses was still living in Deuteronomy. He tells them, when you go into that land, you are got to start worshiping other idols and everything, there's going to be a curse upon them. Because they go to Ebo, and we talked about that a little bit, yeah. and they do blessings and curses, and they, they swore that they would do that. Well, yeah. when they did it, right now he's working on taking their name out of the book of life.
0: Yeah, they they've fallen away. Yeah, they've fallen away at this point. Thank you. What he's saying its usually anything that's going on, especially bad things, you can follow a money trail. There's usually a money trail that takes you to these kind of things, and, and it bends people's thinking. So they see how the nations around them are living. They may be having more fun. It may be more prosperous. It may be, may be that financially it was more lucrative, and they were there worshiping God and doing what, what God wanted them to do. Maybe it looked better to them by, as they were traveling. They were sitting across the borders. There's usually a money trail for these kind of things.
1: Because Syrians are doing God's will.
0: So going on in verse 19, picking up here in verse 19, it says, "...also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they had made. And the Lord rejected the descendants of Israel, afflicted them, and delivered them into the hand of the plunderers, until he had cast them from his sight. For he tore Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them, until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is to this day." So, we pretty well have a fall of the whole kingdom. It's not only just the northern kingdom, but it's the southern kingdom as well. you know, when you hear about people talking about today, and this is a whole thing that we don't have time to get off into, we saw that conflict that happened recently over, over in the Middle East. And you hear people talking about, stand with Israel, and this is their land, and they deserve this land, and they need to have this land back. The Lord fulfilled His promise whenever He gave them this land. And we see here that they've messed it up. They've fallen. They've fallen away. So He gave them this land. And, and you can see as we go on and read this next part, I want you to realize as we read through this next part, that this is still God's land, no matter who's on it, uh, who has it. Israel, at this point, present day, doesn't have any more right, really, to this land than other folks. You see our government, and I don't want to get off into this, but you see our government really promote the support of Israel above all else. Well, they're a nation of people like anyone else. It's just that They deserve humanitarian efforts, and they deserve not to be attacked, and whatever that they would deserve, just like any other a nation of people, but they don't deserve that land any more than anybody else that wanted to go take it because God gave them that land and then they turned their back on God at this point. And they walked away from His teachings and they totally fell from Him. Now, that's not to say that God didn't send them things and help them come back to being His nation, but today, now, as Christians, following what God teaches, we're God's people. Everyone that's a Christian is God's people. It doesn't let you deserve a land. It lets you deserve heaven. And the after a while, if you follow what He teaches, the land was for a purpose. It's not forever.
1: So. You're absolutely right in all things that you said. But there's this point. The government has been influenced by those pre that they will establish a kingdom in Jerusalem again, and they're going to build the temple, and that's a whole other set of uh, doctrine issues that we have to deal with within the church.
0: Yeah, the, the whole reason that the government would back Israel is they think there's some benefit in, the, in it for them. And it's, it's a financial trail or it's, it's a you know, benefit as a world power. I guarantee you it's not because they're so religious that they want to be along in that. So about 10 till I've got to pick up the pace. I'm going to run out of time here. Starting in verse 24, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon. So we're going to see a, to see a real change here. This is going to explain to you why he took the Samaritans out of these cities but he's going to do something really weird here and put them back. And this is going to explain a whole lot. This is the whole reason why we're reading this, so you can understand uh, who the Samaritan people are today in today's world. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthuth, Ava, Hamath, and from Shepharam and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. So he takes people from, from these other areas and takes them and puts them in place of the Samaritan people that were there. So all of a sudden, it's not the Samaritan people there anymore. It's the people from these other nations. And that's what he's filled these cities with. And going on in verse 25, it says, And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there, that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and indeed they're killing them, because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. So here comes the idea of the Assyrian king. And notice, this is going to become important in the next part we look at. Who does he say the Assyrian king here is in this section? Doesn't really say, does he? He just says the Assyrian king. So we'll go on and keep reading. Um, So his idea of why they don't respect the Lord, here's what he's going to do in verse 27. The king of Assyria commanded, saying, send her one of the priests whom we brought from there, and let him go and dwell there and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. And then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So he takes all these people out of these other nations, he takes them back and puts them on the promised land in place of the the people, the Israelite people that was supposed to be there. He takes them out, he puts these people back in their place, and they don't fear the Lord, so they don't fear Him because they don't know Him. So then his solution is to take one of the priests back and let them teach them um, about the ways of the Lord. So he thinks that's going to fix it. So, verse 29. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made. Every nation in, its, in, in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Succoth and Beneth. The men of Cuth made Nergal. And the men of Hamath and Ashma, And the Avites made uh, Nibdaz and Tartak. And the Servites burned their children in the fire of. Um, Abralach and Amalek. So they're making all these false gods. They're putting them back in the high places that the children of Israel made. And then you've got some group here that's following their traditions that are actually burning their children by sacrificing them to God. So you've got all this going on. So the teaching of the priests didn't really fix that. So we go on and we keep reading this, and it says, So they feared the Lord. So they developed a fear for God. They feared Him when they learned about Him. But see what see what they keep going on doing here. So they feared the Lord... And from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places. So they feared Him enough that they put priests in place who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places, and they feared the Lord. Yet they served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. So they feared God, but they didn't fear Him enough to stop doing the things that they were doing. They just combined the two. So they're really not worshiping Him like they should. Now you've got to keep in mind, now this is the nation of Samaria. These are the Samaritans because they're living in Samaria. They're no longer the Israelite nation, but these are people that have been brought in from other nations trying to make them Samarians. So that's who the Samaritans are now. In verse 34 it says, To this day they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes of the ordinances or the law or the commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, who He named Israel, with whom the Lord had uh, made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, First thing He said, you shall not fear other gods. And that's the first thing they did that took them away in the wrong path. Nor bow down to them, nor serve them, or sacrifice to them. And He goes on and says some more stuff here. We probably won't read this last part, but He's going on and He's just reaffirming what He meant for them to do, and they're not doing it. So He takes the children of Israel out, He places them in other cities, and then He brings all these other people in, and He puts them in their place, they don't fear God either. Once they do fear God, then they're mixing their religion all up, their worship of God all up, with all these, other, uh, all these other gods. So here's what I want to try to get into. How many of you have ever heard of Sargon II? Anyone ever hear of him? I knew Monty had. He had. So y'all know what's about to come. So this is going to be interesting. Isaiah 20 and 1, you don't have to turn over there, I'm going to read it to you, but you can if you want. Isaiah 20 and 1 says, In the year that Tartan Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon the king of Assyria sent him, and he fought against Ashdod, and he took it. Um, Ashdod's right there. That's a shaky dot, I know, but Ashdod's right there. In the Philistine land. So we read about, in Isaiah 20 and 1, about a guy named Tartan that comes and takes Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him. I don't have time to go through all this, but basically here's what's happening. Just like Jonathan taught us here in a recent lesson, we've got a lot of people that we read about in the Old Testament that lived at the same time, and their lives overlapped. Well, Isaiah was the same. Isaiah lived during this time. Isaiah was a prophet to the northern and the southern kingdom, to the children of Israel. And Isaiah was prophesying about these things, so when Isaiah writes the things that he experienced and the things that he done, it's during this time. And you've got this guy named Sargon, That's mentioned, but there's no no other mention of Sargon II anywhere else in Scripture. Isaiah 20 and 1 mentions that. There's no mention of him in Scripture. There's no record of him otherwise anywhere that we'll see until his palace was discovered. So there actually was a Sargon II. Sargon II really was a Syrian king. We didn't have any mention of him, but his palace wasn't discovered cut through some of this and I'll give you the short version Sargon the the time that he lived and we we only see him mentioned in Isaiah we didn't have any historical of him until they find his palace whenever they had Nineveh you know we mentioned Nineveh we know what Nineveh is y'all remember Nineveh yeah so Nineveh was the capital of the Syrian kingdom that's where the capital was that's where everybody expected Sargon and all the rest of the king's capital to be but it wasn't Sargon had made a capital for himself in uh, what is the modern-day Khorsabad, Iraq, is where where his capital was. The capital was in dur I guess that's the right pronunciation, I'm getting close. That's where the capital was, which is modern-day Khorsabad, Iraq. But they did actually find his, they did actually find his citadel. He he built a really nice city with a citadel. Uh, I think I've got Rome Gershon. So this is Sargon II. This is the relief of Sargon II. This is a likeness of him that's carved into the stone that they found when they excavated this. And this is, when they excavated this, they found it. You see the little up and down, all that jagged part of that wall? That's the, that's the wall of the citadel. And then the light tan is where Sargon, Sargon actually lived inside that. He had a palace inside there. He had a throne room. You can see a little pyramid kind of built there. That was something they built a lot back in those days. So why is this important to the story of, uh, the, the story that we're talking about about the Samaritans? Well, here's why. The quick version. Now we know that Sargon II's palace was excavated. Shalemeser died somewhere during the siege of Samaria. And we don't know if it was during the siege or it was at the very end whenever they took the people out, but... We know that Sargon is the one that actually took the people out and dispersed them in the cities and then then brought new people in. Well, how do we know this? We know this by some of the things that was excavated. This is Sargon with tartan. This is a relief that's in there. You remember this was buried for years, so this wasn't made up after the fact. I know it's a little bit of a dark picture, but this is Sargon, and it's labeled in the relief as tartan. This is tartan that was with him. This is Sargon's servants carrying his throne. has no significance to the story, but it's cool. And this is the seal of Sargon that he would have used. It's got him depicted fighting a lion. So if they would send a letter, they'd melt the hot wax and they would stamp this seal in it. This is Sargon's stamp. You didn't get a stamp if you were not a legitimate king. Here's the thing we're trying to get to. And you look at this, and this looks like it might be the size of a loaf of bread, like you could hold it in your hand. But it's not. This is 10 feet tall. It's called a prism. 10 feet tall, by a little over 30 inches wide. And when they excavated this, they got somebody to uh, translate what it has carved on it. And these are uh, the exploits of Sargon. It tells all about it, the campaigns that he done. Here's what it says, and this is what I want to read you. You'll find this interesting. Remember I said when I was a kid, I hated history. Didn't want anything to do with it. But as I become a Christian and I started finding secular history that tells me so much about biblical history, I love it. It's a totally different change. Here's what it says. At the beginning of my royal rule... And you've got to remember, this is Sargon talking. I don't know if he carved it. He probably had somebody carve it for him. But he says, at the beginning of my royal rule, I the town of Samaritans I besieged and conquered. I led away prisoners, 27,290 inhabitants of it, equipped from among the soldiers to man, 50 chariots for my royal corps, the town I rebuilt better than it was before and settled therein, people from countries which I had conquered. I placed an officer of mine as governor over them and imposed upon them tribute as is customary from Assyrian citizens. It was Sargon that did what we just read about and his... His depiction of this on this piece of stone that was dug up in the 1800s matches what we just read perfectly. He was a real person. It really happened. Real fast, I'm going to bump through the slides. This is present-day Samaria, which is no longer Samaria. It's Sebastia. There is no city there where Samaria is anymore. It's these ruins. The Sebastia is just close by. Samaria was uh, destroyed and rebuilt at least three other times from what we remember. Alexander the Great did it. John Hycarnus did it. And the Romans destroyed it. And that's the the state that it would have been in during Jesus' time. Samaria would have been a destroyed state from the Romans. Romans had Roman rule then. So these are some of the ruins left over. This is a young man in Samaria headed to the temple to worship on a Saturday. This is typical dress from the Samaritans. Lambs for the Passover and the sacrifice. This is a Samaritan man leading them through the street. You can see lots of folks around taking videos and pictures of this as it's happening as tourists. You can actually go over there and witness this if you want. They still do it. These are the olive wood blocks that they're preparing. And as a woodworker, I hate seeing that big one right in the middle get thrown in a fire. It's all knotty and you could fillet that. Man, you could make some beautiful cutting boards and knife handles. Chris probably knows about that. He makes some knives. Beautiful wood, but it's the wood they have so they're burning it. Um, And they burn it in pits. This is the overhead of them and you can see all the smoke and they put a pit and sticks and a rod through the animal, through the sheep or the goat and they put them over top of this pit. I've got one thing that I want to read here real quick and it's from a tourist that witnessed this and I read it from a tourist, not a news person. I don't trust news people. But this is a tourist and this is an actual account. It says, Every year scholars and tourists come from around the world to witness the Paschal sacrifice which is performed and it's described as it's described in the book of Exodus. The high priest examines each family's uh, lamb or sheep to make sure there is no blemish and all the animals are slaughtered at once and roasted on splits, uh, rod through the animals supported by two sticks. It's a bloody ritual and participants dressed in white spread blood on their foreheads to stave off the angel of death at midnight, the roasted lamb consumed rapidly uh, with matzah and bitter herbs. So last picture, they're going up the mountain. This is on the day of the Passover. They're carrying the Torah. That's what they follow. That's what the Samaritan people follow is this Torah. That's what they believe they have. That's the actual direction that they're supposed to take. They don't believe that uh, any other writing is something you should follow. That's the Torah with those spots on the top. So what I would encourage you to do is go back and read uh, in Luke 10 and 30, the Good Samaritan. But really the real one to read that would really make you look at it different is John 4, 1-26, the Samaritan woman at the well. Read that with this new perspective of the Samaritans of what you know about them now. They still exist. There's like 874 of them that exist. They're struggling to continue because they have a high ratio of men to women, so they're having trouble reproducing to be able to grow their nation like they would like to grow while they were a lot smaller numbers at one time. And they won't import other women in. They did that recently with a few from Europe, but I find that ironic because they're a mixed nation that's not a pure nation of Israel, but they won't import women to help grow that because they don't want to make their nation not pure they're a mixed race of people just like we are in america everybody came in so anyway go back and read about the samaritans with this new knowledge of who the samaritans are and hopefully that'll make you see them differently thank you sorry i'm a little bit over but i wanted you to see those last slides